Imagine Christianity minus the entertainment shows, the hypocrisy and jockeying for positions of power within the, within the complex network of denominational organizations. What would Christianity look like minus every man-made rule and human tradition imposed these last 2,000 years of church history? That, Mark Dunnigan, is what we are going to be talking about today. Yes, I think a lot of people have questions about that from the standpoint of, wait a minute, Last I noted, there's about 46,000 different denominations. That certainly doesn't look like what's in the Bible. I think also there have been people that are saying like, well, you know, I'm, I'm not a Bible expert, but we got some churches around there saying that the things that the Bible condemns are okay now. So I think there's a lot of confusion. We wanted to kind of get in and see mm-hmm. what's really the Christianity that you find in the scriptures. So, Mark, I thought maybe a good place to start would be, like, where in the scriptures do we learn whether the church or the kingdom of God is a human idea or a divine idea? Because a lot of people are like, oh, people made this up. Great question. First of all, Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, I will build my church. That's a good place to start. Yeah. But how about Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, which says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This one is in accordance with the eternal purpose, which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, number one, the church is not a human idea Mm -hmm. in the Bible. Jesus is the founder of it, and it is not a last-minute idea. The church is part of God's eternal purpose, which takes us back to the Old Testament. If that's the case, we should be able to find some Old Testament prophecies that speak of this establishment of this relationship. Yeah, and Mark, you know, I thought it might be helpful, too, right off the bat, to talk about the terms that are used that we're going to be talking about. So the church and the kingdom, I mean... Is this the same relationship or because sometimes we will be talking about the church and sometimes we'll be talking about the kingdom. So what helps us there? Good question. Many things in the Bible kind of have more than one term applied to them. When it comes to the church, uh, the church is called the household of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. It is called the bride of Christ or it's called the body of Christ in Mm -hmm. the Ephesian letter. It's Mm -hmm. also called the temple of God. Yet, it's also called the kingdom of God. And one place where you would see that is if you compare Acts chapter 2, about verse 38 through 47 with Colossians 1, in Colossians 1, 13 and 14, people are transferred into the kingdom by God. And in that kingdom, there's the remission of sins. In Acts 2 people are added to the church after having their sins forgiven, and the Lord added them to that relationship. And so that would be one place. What people in the first century did to become a member of the church automatically placed them in the kingdom. Mm -hmm. One other line of reasoning is that in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, 5 and 6, it says that, you know, Jesus died for us, loved us, released us from our sins by his blood, and made us to be a kingdom. Mm. And so that passage, the kingdom is blood-bought people. Mm -hmm. But in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, there it speaks of the church that's purchased with his blood. There's another good tie-in. What's so great about all those different kinds of names that are used for the church is it kind of brings out a different aspect, doesn't it? Like the bride of Christ kind of talks, it's more about an intimate relationship that the people have in the kingdom kind of reminds us more of his lordship and that we are his subjects. 
Yeah, the body of Christ, each member is part of this body, uh, the bride of Christ, where we are to be loyal and faithful to Christ alone. The kingdom, uh, this is a relationship composed of people that have bowed the knee to Jesus. The church, the word means the called out. These are people that have been called out of darkness and are now in light. All right, so definitely towards the end of this podcast, we're going to dig into all the details of what this gorgeous pre-denominational Christianity looks like in practice, but we thought it might be helpful to see how this has been God's plan from the very beginning. So where are the first clues that we get in the Old Testament, thousands of years before Christ comes, that God is planning his spiritual kingdom? One of the first places, it's a promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, that when David is dead and buried, particularly starting about verse 12, he will have a son, and some of that would apply to Solomon, and Solomon would build the house of God. But it also applies to Jesus because it speaks of that this son building a house and establishing a kingdom that lasts forever. And so that would be one of the first places. Also, Isaiah chapter 2 Isaiah chapter 2 has a lot of parallels with Acts chapter 2. It says in the last days, and that's what Acts chapter 2, that's the time period that Peter quotes Joel's prophecy in about verse 16 and 17 of Acts 2. Yeah. It says that the the Lord's house will be established, and 1 Timothy 3.15, the Lord's house in the New Testament is the church. Many nations would stream to it. Mm -hmm. In Acts 2, we have the beginning of the gospel going to the entire known world at the time, and we have Jews in Jerusalem from every nation under heaven, specifically named, probably in about verses 9 through 11 of Acts chapter 2. And then it speaks of the law of the Lord, and this would be like the gospel, Jesus's law, the new covenant going from Jerusalem. That's where it started. So there's a lot of good parallels there. In Acts 2, the church is in existence. We find that in verse 47. We have people there from every nation under heaven, We have God's new law preached publicly by Peter and the 11 apostles, and we have the attitude that we find in Acts chapter 2 of people that wanted to learn about that law and walk in it Mm -hmm. when the people said, men and brethren, what shall we do? One of the things that is so convicting to me about the kingdom of God being established when it was is the specificity of Daniel's prophecy. So boy, does that narrow it down. Yeah, in Daniel's prophecy, it's actually a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had that Daniel interprets. And so it's Daniel 2, 36 through about verse 44. And Daniel clearly points out that in this image that has four sections, Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom are the head, or they're the first section. They're the head of gold. But then Daniel says there's another empire after that. That would be the Medo-Persian Empire. Then a third empire, Alexander the Great's empire. Then a fourth empire. And that would be the Roman Empire. And then in verse 44, it says, In the days of those kings, in the days of that fourth empire, or the Roman Empire, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. And so when you pick up your New Testament and start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, uh, it's the Roman Empire. We have Roman governors. We have Roman Caesars. We have a Roman census. And then you also find in the New Testament where Christians are said to receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, Mm -hmm. Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 28. Mm -hmm. So that limits, you might say, that specifies that the kingdom that God would establish would come within the days of that fourth empire, which has long vanished. 
so amazing that it's only during that empire that now there's a bunch of roads, right, that have been created so that when the gospel does go out for the first time in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, number one, a bunch of people from all over the world are there for a festival. So they're going to all go home and take the gospel. Now we have all these roads that are built. And you know what else we have that's beyond providential is that we have a form of execution called crucifixion now. Yeah, there's a number of very specific things. Uh, Old Testament clearly prophesies that Jesus would be, his hands and feet would be pierced, but not a bone would be broken in his body. And so that refers to a very specific type of execution that had a limited window for its practice. In addition to that, John the Baptist and Jesus, when they show up, both preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Mark 9.1, Jesus got a little bit more specific Mm -hmm. when he said, there are some of you here, that is his disciples, who had not experienced death Uh until they had seen the kingdom of God come with power. And then in the epistles, it's clearly stated that the kingdom has arrived, that the church is already here. Like Colossians 1, 13 and 14, uh, Christians there are in the kingdom, or Revelation 1, 5 and 6. All right. So I think the important thing is that the relationship that God established, known as the kingdom, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the church, the temple of God, or the family of God, came on the day of Pentecost, around 30 or 33 A.D., recorded in the book of Acts chapter 2. So any group out there that claims a founding date other than that Mm -hmm. is not correct. Okay, so any body that's religious that was not started on the day of Pentecost is a different body than the original kingdom of God or church. Yeah, and it's called a kingdom, and in Ephesians 1, 22 and 23, it says that he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body. Okay, so that's Christ, right? Yeah, and so if we might ask the question, what are the ramifications of Jesus being head over all things to the church? Uh Well, one would be is that there's no room for any sort of human head or headquarters. Yeah. So he has the final authority. And so the church that is the church of the Bible is a church that follows the head doesn't vote on things, doesn't determine to make up its own rules, doesn't say that, well, this is now modern times. It holds fast to the head. And so Jesus is the final authority of that group, that whatever they believe or practice or teach, you can find book, chapter, and verse for those teachings in the words of Jesus. Yeah, unhealthy things happen, Mark Dunnigan, when the body is not listening to the head. I mean, physically, there are diseases that are tragic when the body's doing one thing and it is no longer in tune with what the head would prefer. So tell us about some of the warnings in the Bible of God knew that things were going to look the way they look today. And so at the beginning, um, Jesus, he is head over all things to the church. So there's one church in the New Testament. Ephesians 4 says there is one body. Yeah. Jesus said, I will build my church, not I will build thousands of denominations. So what did God say was going to happen after Jesus returned and ascended back to the Father? Clearly in the New Testament, one church or kingdom is established. 
and all believers, Christians, are part of that group. Now, you're going to have separate congregations because you can't all meet together, right? Right. And so that's fine. Uh, but they're all following the same doctrine. They're all teaching the same practice. They're all part of the one body. They're just these groups of believers in different cities. Yeah, they all agreed, Mark. And wasn't that Jesus's dying wish in John 17? Jesus, his dying wish is that, Father, may they all be one just, just as we are one. I mean, that is total oneness right there. Yeah, that's John 17, 20, 21. Mm -hmm. Now, if we're looking for passages as far as did God look ahead and see that there would be a falling away or the word would be apostasy, departure, deviation from this idea of the one body and Christ is ahead. Yes. And the answer to that is yes. Okay. A couple passages. Acts chapter 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Next verse, he says to the elders there, even some of you are going to fall away mm. and try to lure away disciples after yourselves. Mm -hmm. Now, another passage would be that gives us, you might say, kind of the attitude of what's one of the attitudes that's going to lead to this would okay. be Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 2 through 3. Okay. Timothy's told, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Whether people want to hear it or not, preach God's truth. Rebuke, rebuke, reprove, exhort. You don't get a lot of rebuking in modern churches today with great patience and instruction. Mm -hmm. For the time will come when they, that is the members, will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, you know, hear what sounds good to me, mm -hmm. they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. Mm -hmm. And then it says they'll turn away from the truth and they'll turn aside the myths. And so there's the attitude of, I'm tired of the truth. The truth does not allow me to do what I selfishly want to do. And I'm going to find, and there will always be people like this. Mm -hmm. I'm going to find people that will tell me what I want to hear. Tell that me is, those uh, sweet little lies, Mark Dunnigan. Yeah, you can keep your sin and still be a Christian. That's the favorite. So, in but in First Timothy chapter 4, it says in verse 1, the Spirit explicitly says that in, the, that in latter times, after Paul writes this letter, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and the doctrines of demons. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who, and here are two specific early false doctrines associated with this apostasy, men who forbid marriage, and that would be they advocate a mandatory celibacy. Mm -hmm. Celibacy is like more spiritual than being married. And advocate abstaining from foods. That is a are um, enforcing a number of food laws. Now, we know that there are food laws in the Old Testament, but those all ended at the cross in Colossians chapter 2. The whole law ended at the cross. 17. Yes, the whole <laughs> right? law ended there. But here are people that want to come up with a number of uh, human ideas. You know, we think celibacy is more spiritual, and there are certain foods that we don't want to eat anymore, and we want to make that law. Okay. We need to, before we go into this next section, we need to understand that at least three times throughout the scriptures, uh, one in the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 4.2, one in Proverbs 30, and one at the end, mm -hmm. Revelation 22, 18 through 19, other places too, there are specific warnings. The book is not a book of like a cafeteria. You don't add to it. You don't take away from it. Or God will add to you the plagues written in this yeah, book, yeah. not to add what in Deuteronomy. Adding, right. Adding to or taking away 
would sever your relationship with God, Second John 9. Mm-hmm. You mess with Scripture, you start coming with your own ideas, you are no longer right with God. And what does the proverb say about it? Well, it says, don't add to his words, lest God prove you a liar, okay. particularly like at the last day when God says, hey, you were teaching this. Where did the Bible ever say that? And, and how severe the punishment mentioned in Revelation. Oh, uh, the plagues come upon you, you okay. know, eternal destruction. All right, so serious business, because the ultimate theme of the Old Testament had always been, I am holy, and I will be treated as holy. And Jesus connects it with relationship when he says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So it's not like, oh, are we going to keep the law? Are we going to have a loving relationship with Jesus? They are one in the same. But so things go sideways, Mark, exactly as what was predicted and what you just read about these predictions of this apostasy or this falling away that by the fact that Jesus prayed for unity, they were not going to stay unified, but they would be finding people to tell them what they want to hear. And it's amazing to kind of look into the history of how that progressed. I mean, initially, Emperor Justinian declared Pope John II, quote, Lord of the Church. Which would be in contrast to Jesus' head over all things to the Church. And in 607, the Emperor makes Pope Boniface III, quote, head of all the Church, unquote. Like, how blasphemous is that? It's interesting there, Cindy, that in the New Testament, each congregation had its own elders. They're called bishops, pastors, shepherds. And you would find that in First Peter 5, 1 through 3. E- even Peter, even Peter was a, an elder. And those elders had to be married. And those elders or bishops could only oversee the congregation they were a member of. And beyond the local congregational level, there was no organizational structure, especially this idea of one man as head over all the church. That's completely absent from the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Also amazing that like a, around the year 400, once saved, always saved is beginning to surface. I mean, boy, doesn't that tickle your ears? There is nothing that you can do that takes away your salvation if you're a Christian. Yeah, and there are just so many passages that contradict that. In the book of Galatians chapter 5, Paul told the Galatians that they had fallen from grace. Mm-hmm. Infant baptism is introduced in the year 400. Mark, how many infants were baptized in the New Testament? You know, the only people baptized in the New Testament were people old enough to hear the gospel, that is, understand it, believe it, repent of their sins, Acts 2.38, and be baptized. Mm-hmm. Because, so there yeah, are no infants baptized. <laughs> the eunuch even asks during his baptism, like, oh, what prevents me from being baptized? And if you believe with all your heart, you may. Infants cannot believe with all their heart. Yeah, we have no examples of people being taken against their will mm-hmm. and being baptized. So worship of Mary, the mother of Jesus, begins in 431. And clearly, I mean, even angels said don't worship them. So clearly we are not to worship Mary. And mm-hmm. also it makes it very clear that there's only one mediator. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that's Jesus. Yeah, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shall thou serve, right? Yeah, so the one mediator verse would be Second Timothy 2 mm. and verse 5. Okay. Verse 4 also goes against the idea of unconditional election or predestination, mm. where certain people have been selected to be saved long before they existed, where it says God desires 
all men to be saved. Mm, right. That would be unjust, wouldn't it? That you were born with absolutely no hope of being saved. That can't be true with the God that we serve. Pope Vitalian Mark introduces organ music in the year 700. In contrast to the clear command simply to sing in Ephesians 5.19. I think a lot of people assume that since God allowed and instructed for worship in the Old Testament that that must be a part of the New Testament. But there's a lot of physical ways that people worshiped in the Old Testament. You know, uh, animal sacrifice. We have the spiritual sacrifice of Jesus. And prayers are in the New Testament um, symbolized by the incense of the Old Testament. So a lot of things changed about how we worship from old to new. And not one person in church history worshiped for hundreds and hundreds of years with an instrument of music. Like you are the instrument. It's spiritual. You know, the one that really blows me away, Mark, the last one that I'll mention here is well, let's skip holy water in, a, <laughs> in the year 1009 and rosary beads in the year 1090. Um, the one that really blows me away in 1190 that, in, that is introduced, that is a false teaching, not in the Bible, is the sale of indulgences. Yeah, where you could actually buy your forgiveness. Yeah, and, and you know what they're going to do with that money. You wonder why, oh, well, how did they get the money for all these gorgeous cathedrals and stained glass, not to mention holy wars. You know, that's how all of that was funded. Like, oh, you want to commit that sin? If you pay us this money, we will see to it that you are not punished for your sin. Right, and no man can do that. Only, I mean, only Jesus can forgive. Yeah, and Jesus doesn't forgive us by exploiting us. Sprinkling is authorized in the year 1311. And it's very clear that baptism in the New Testament is immersion. That's what the word means. Mm -hmm. And also the examples reinforce that, especially in Romans 6, where it's called a burial. All right. So in 1530, Martin Luther has had enough, right? <laughs> he's, he's Catholic, but he's like, we need to reform some things here. So he nails 95 things that to the church door that he believes needs to change. That is uh, practices, false doctrines that are being taught in the Catholic church. And so that's kind of how the Reformation starts, right? Yeah, that would be the very beginning of what ha what has been called Protestant groups or mm -hmm. the protestant movement mm -hmm. that is uh, and in that word is the word protest they were protesting catholicism for a good reason and so that's the beginning of what you might say your main line protestant denominations lutheran church then we'll have the episcopal church or the church of england we'll have the baptist church the presbyterian church the methodist church etc they all come out of that same general movement. Yeah, you can find really interesting charts to see the circumstances of a lot of those. Some of their doctrines that they teach, they borrow from the Catholic Church. They're used to those things. New teachings are constantly, constantly being added to the church. And so, and then in the more recent years, like starting in the 1800s, a lot of people are starting to claim that God is speaking through them and giving them new doctrines, new rules, new expectations. So we see that in the Mormon Church. We see that in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That your witnesses in Christian science, all those groups fall into the category of like Latter-day Revelation groups. Right. God is still speaking through someone. And the Bible warns us about that, like Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, even if an angel from heaven would give you a gospel, contrary to the one the apostles taught, you're under a curse. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, a lot of that is a, our motivation for sharing these scriptures today is that we love these people and there are some 
very lovable people all over the world that have been deceived and are a part of a body that is not listening to the head. Romans 2, Paul talks about in his time, there were people that had a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And so Mm -hmm. you can't make the argument, but these people are so zealous. That doesn't make up for not doing what the Bible says. Zeal doesn't save you in and of itself. So when we started off talking about that kingdom, one of the qualities of it was that this would be a kingdom that would never be destroyed. So the whole time all that chaos is going on and all these people are going all their different directions according to what they want to believe instead of what God is saying, the kingdom of God is still there because it said it would never be destroyed. So that's in the background there still. There are people still worshiping God biblically that whole time. Yeah, there's the the New Testament pattern. That is, there are people that are still out there following the New Testament pattern throughout Mm -hmm. the world, even to this day. And so we wanted to talk about like... Yeah, what does that pattern look like? Because the thing is, in Hebrews 8 and 9, see, God says that you make all things according to the pattern when this uh, tabernacle was constructed, right? And so that, that is a symbol of the New Testament church, we learn. And so how much more that the spiritual tabernacle must be made according to the pattern that is from the mind of God, the head of the church. Yeah, the tabernacle was built according to a pattern, Exodus 25. The temple was built according to a pattern. And David makes that clear when he gives it to Solomon. And how much more the greater tabernacle, the greater temple, the the church, which is the spiritual tabernacle, temple would also have a pattern. In fact, Paul tells Timothy that, uh, you know, in case I'm delayed, I write so that a man will know how to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of a living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. First Timothy chapter three, verse 15. Yeah. And I think it's a popular idea right now to think that God's going to take anything we want to give him. Like, isn't that how we love one another? We just sort of, but we're equals. <laughs> yeah, that's dangerous thinking that God will just accept anything I offer to him and call it worship because that's not the Bible track record. There are people condemned in the Bible for offering unauthorized worship like Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. So we need to give God the worship that he desires. Yeah, I mean, Mark 7, 6 through 9 says, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. So when we teach the precepts of men, it actually makes our worship vain. Yeah, so human tradition, tradition that's not found in Scripture, will sever our relationship with God. It Mm -hmm. did with the Pharisees and the people of Jesus' time. It will do the same thing to us. Second John 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So the teaching of Christ does have parameters. It Mm -hmm. doesn't mean everything and anything. It's not a catch-all. It teaches very specific things. So we need to make sure that as we look at what do I believe and what are we practicing? Okay. Okay. Is it rooted in scripture or is this just man-made? If it's man-made, then we need to get rid of it. 
Yeah, I mean, look, what's at stake, Mark, in First Timothy 4.16, where Timothy is told to pay close attention to yourself and your teaching, persevere in these things, for as long as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and those who hear you. So salvation is at stake. And then 1 Corinthians 4.6 gives another reason why we got to pay attention to what God says, what the head is saying. It says, learn not to exceed what is written so that no one of you will become arrogant in behalf of one against another. So that's often what's at the root of man-made teachings is an arrogance. So again, give me book, chapter, and verse. Give me a book, chapter, and verse. Well, we wanted to take a look at, so what does this Christianity that is there before Catholicism before the denominations. What does it look like in practice? Well, Mark, probably one of the first things that we can look for is that what we're going to notice is people loving one another in the ways a thriving family would. And that's why Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. But also, Mark, would it also be like what they're called? The first thing that distinguishes humans from one another is their name. Is that going to be relevant? Yeah, it's interesting. In Acts chapter 11, verse 26, the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So obviously, well, obviously the denominations arrive long after the first century. And so those denominational names are not going to be in Scripture. Mm -hmm. But what's in Scripture is the term Christian. In fact, First Peter four sixteen says, "But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in this name." So one way for unity would simply let's just drop all the denominational names and call yeah. and man made names, and let's just call ourselves with what we're supposed to wear biblically. Yeah. We're followers of Christ. We're not followers of men or systems. And also, let's just also use the correct terminology for the church, mm-hmm. like it's called in Romans sixteen sixteen. All the churches of Christ salute you. Let's uh, respect the terminology and the names that God has given in Scripture for things. And so entrance into the kingdom of God or the a biblical church, what does God say his plan is to save mankind? Because isn't faith trusting his way to save us? <laughs> what did he say is his way to save us, Mark? Well, before faith can arrive, there needs to be hearing the gospel. Romans ten seventeen, faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of God. So the steps, we might say the steps towards entering this relationship are you hear the gospel you believe it, there's that faith, and that would be like Mark 16, 16, or John three sixteen. There's also the repentance. You can't bring your sin with you. And so Acts two thirty eight, repent. There is also, Jesus said, you need to confess me before men. And in the example of Acts eight thirty seven, the eunuch makes a confession of Jesus. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God prior to the last step, baptism. And there are just many passages that make it clear that baptism is the last step prior to entering this relationship, prior to the remission of sins, prior to salvation. Mark 16, 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Acts 2, 38, repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Acts 2, 47, the people that were baptized were added. They were added to the church, verse 47. Or 1 Peter three twenty one. baptism now saves you. That would be one of the things I'd be looking for is, okay, what is the plan of salvation they teach? If they're mm-hmm. teaching just, all you got to do is believe or the sinner's prayer or whatever, you're going like, eh, that's not biblical. 
Right. There is no accept Jesus into your heart. Yeah. You don't even find that type of language in Scripture. And the only time faith and alone are used together is in James 2.24 that says, You see a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Which means that God anticipated the false doctrines that Mm -hmm. would be taught. And there are verses that specifically address them. Like there are verses that say, You're not saved by faith alone. And there are verses that say, You've fallen from grace. Yeah. All right, so what might mark in this pristine, beautiful, simplistic New Testament worship, what might that look like? So the early Christians were commanded to assemble, Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 and 25, and they met on the first day of the week, Acts chapter 20, verse 7. And when they met, they did some specific things. They heard preaching, they prayed, they partook of communion, or the Lord's Supper. You would find that in Acts 20, verse 7. You would also find that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. They also gave. They didn't tithe. Rather, they gave as they had been prospered. That would be 1 Corinthians 16, verses 1 through 3. And they sang songs, hymns, and spiritual songs and made melody in their heart, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. That sounds much more God-focused than entertainment that we see in today's man-made religion. Yeah, it was worship, the worship that God wanted. It was directed towards him. Uh, It wasn't entertainment. It wasn't a show. Also, what I talked about there, that can be that can be done anywhere. Y- yeah. You do not need a huge building which, uh, with an amazing sound system, etc. You can do all those acts of worship anywhere, outside, under a tree, etc. So it is, is very, it, is, <laughs> it is very streamlined. Yeah. Also, it really prevents any sort of human praise or glorification of man. Right. Oh, you know, like, look how cute the drummer is. Or, oh, her voice just blows me away. No, it's about being God-focused. Yeah, there were no soloists. It's interesting that mm. the command to sing is speaking to one another. So no one's getting the spotlight with a solo, etc. Uh-huh. It's congregational singing where everyone sings. Yeah, it's about loving God. Authentic, restored Christianity is clean, Mark. It's not wasteful. And in primitive Christianity alone, God has placed genuine happiness, deep fulfillment, and indescribable freedom. It's uncluttered uncluttered now the same thing is true though if you look at the organizational structure Uh that you find in the new testament very uncluttered jesus is the head soul head in ephesians 1 20 through 23 so no worldwide headquarters no human head no councils no assemblies no conventions etc that's going to save some money (laughs) oh yeah no 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 bureaucracy okay yeah and then at the local level at the local level you have elders they're also called bishops overseers pastors Mm -hmm. their qualifications are given in first timothy 3 and titus 1 along with the qualifications of deacons among them, they have to be men, they have to be married, the husband of one wife, and they have to have believing children, apt to teach, and various moral qualifications. Then their authority is limited to the congregation that they're a member of. First mm-hmm. Peter chapter 5, verse 2. Yeah, and it's the wording there is not like, here's some good qualities to think about if you're thinking about men to help shepherd the local congregation. No, it's elders must be. Right, and the list is very different from what you might see in a lot of leadership books today, is that these are, de- these are definitely not like corporate sort of qualities. You know, these are, these are moral qualities. These are leadership, true leadership, true spiritual leadership 
qualities. Right. So, Mark, what about cardinals? What about nuns? What about... Yeah, first time I read the Bible, it just blew my mind that all that stuff I'd grown up with, all that stuff I'd heard about, I read from Genesis to Revelation, zero. Found zero mm-hmm. of it. Yeah. And another quality, Mark, of God's people would be that they would live life in a morally upright way, right? God over and over again said, you must be holy for I am holy. So what are some instructions for God's children on a moral level that we would notice being applied to the individuals within a congregation? Well, there's definitely a moral standard for Christians. And we're often told, don't be deceived. I mean, we're told, that these things should not even be named among us. Mm-hmm. And, if we, and if we get into them, we're called to repent, or uh, we can't call ourselves a Christian. Mm-hmm. And so the, the specifics would be we can't be involved in fornication. That is any form of sex outside of a husband-wife marriage. We can't be an idol worshiper or an adulterer, or we can't be a homosexual or a thief or greedy or a drunkard. Uh, or a viler or a swindler. That would be First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. It's in, in, we've been talking about a kingdom, Mark, and there it says that these will not inherit the kingdom of God. Yeah, don't let anyone deceive you. If you practice this, you don't end up saved. The and, encouraging thing, too, is, honey, that it says such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. So if you're involved in these things, God is your answer. Again, very streamlined. The Bible says you can change, you can repent, Mm -hmm. you can break from these sins. So it's not complicated there. The Bible makes it very clear what is acceptable and unacceptable behavior. Mm -hmm. No gray areas, kind of black and white on the moral issues. Book of Galatians chapter 5, 19 and following is here's a list of the works of the flesh. These will keep you out of heaven, verse 21. And it's not just about pure what you don't do. It's, and here's the qualities that you need to put on the fruit of the Spirit. Need to have that. Yes, yeah, so specifically Galatians five nineteen through 21 says, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So Mark, let's wind this down. God knew that we needed a spiritual family, didn't he? Mm-hmm. I mean, we need people to celebrate with when we have triumphs and joys in life, and we need the people that are there to support us during our darkest times of our life. Absolutely. So we're encouraging folks today, let's return to a pre-denominational Christianity by building a warm relationship with our Heavenly Father through tending to His wise instruction book for life, the Bible and yielding to his wise direction for our eternal soul and find that loving spiritual family that expresses their love for him in the ways that he has asked us to express that love. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So you can know that you are snuggled up next to the good shepherd when you have a properly applied book, chapter, and verse for everything you believe and teach. 
Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life. John 10, 27. So let's never forget what we have here in Christ. We are blessed souls that are grazing in the green pastures and are refreshed by the living waters that Jesus promised for those who hunger for the pleasure of pristine, simple, daily living for God's purposes. This was a really good program. I think it was very useful. And hopefully if people have other questions, they'd reach out to us because we're always here to answer those questions. If you're going to be part of a church, man, be part of the church you can find in the Bible. You know that one has God's approval. And thank you everyone for joining us for this conversation about the beautiful simplicity of New Testament Christianity.